0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. One of the good things about working at a magazine like ours is getting to spend time learning about the interests and hobbies of our colleagues. So I'm glad to have Alex Stern here today. He's our features editor. He joined the staff last fall, and perhaps you've already encountered some of his writing on film, politics, and intellectual history in the magazine. He's the perfect person to speak with Philip Kitcher, a veteran philosopher at Columbia University. The Kitcher has just written a book criticizing philosophy's growing alienation from human concerns, and that's just some of what he and Alex will be talking about. Be sure to stick around afterward for a short reflection by former Commonweal managing editor and current contributor Kate Lucky on the novelist and essayist Marilyn Robinson. That's part of our ongoing series highlighting writers from Commonweal's first 100 years. That's all coming right up on the Commonweal podcast. Hi, Alex. It's good to see you here, actually, right in the Commonwealth office. Great to be here, Dominic. So, tell us a little bit about your conversation with Philip Kitcher.
1: Sure. So, Kitcher is the John Dewey Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Columbia. He spent his career primarily as a philosopher of scientists. He's especially well-known for his work on the philosophy of biology. He's written about the relationship between science and politics, And more recently, he's been interested in the pragmatist tradition of American philosophy, so people like John Dewey and William James. Pragmatism is concerned with the usefulness of philosophical thinking and argumentation, and Dewey especially was concerned in the 1920s that philosophy would become a narrow, arcane, overly professionalized field, uninteresting to the average reader, and basically useless for society as a whole. Kitcher's new book basically argues that the world Dewey feared is here, at least in mainstream Anglo-American philosophy. This is often called analytic philosophy because of its concern for argumentative rigor and clarity. But Kitcher, along with many others, feel that this rigor has come at the expense of relevance as philosophers dig into more and more esoteric questions of little interest or application outside the academy. So we talked about the problems he sees with the discipline and possible solutions. It was of particular interest to me, having left academic philosophy to work at a magazine concerned with bringing big ideas to a general audience. Great, Alex. Thanks. Let's take a listen. Philip Kitcher, thank you for joining the Commonweal podcast. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Maybe you could start by talking a little bit about what drew you to philosophy in the first place why you think it's such an important discipline and some of the philosophical questions you've pursued in your career.
2: I entered philosophy by accident,
1: uh, I have to say. I went
2: to Cambridge in the 1960s to study mathematics, discovered fairly quickly that while I was good at problem solving, I thought I would never do anything creative in mathematics and was advised by my tutor at the time that I should, I should find a change of subject. So he directed me to talk to the historians of science. I didn't get taught much philosophy or philosophy of science at Cambridge, but I did go to graduate school at Princeton, where I was completely unprepared. And I gradually, unfortunately, managed to find a direction in writing about historical work in the philosophy of mathematics. And that led me to a whole series of problems and issues about knowledge and mathematical knowledge in particular. And I had also to teach, which I've enjoyed very much throughout my career. And my students then urged me to broaden the, the places in which I sought examples. So I was, uh, I was asked if I could possibly give some examples from biology when I was talking about science. And that led me to Realize how fascinating biology had become. So I started getting interested in problems about biological science, problems about the reception of biological science, the creationism controversy, and then problems about the uses of biology in explaining human behavior. This was a time of, of people trying to say that our biology drives the kind of conduct that we, that we are restricted to and we can't hope for genuine social change. And I started responding to that. Then I became very interested in questions about how science fits within society, and that led me directly into ethical questions and questions about political philosophy. I think I came into philosophy sideways, and therefore, possibly, I'm unable to appreciate the kinds of things that sometimes people think of as central to philosophy. But when I read Dewey talking about how philosophy can become detached from the problems of the day, from the problems that ordinary people encounter, which philosophy has traditionally responded to, that really resonated with me.
1: In contrast with that style of philosophy and that approach that takes questions from the ordinary world and from the experiences of ordinary people, there's another sort of more central tradition called analytic philosophy. So I think our listeners could probably use a brief characterization of the kinds of questions being asked in analytic philosophy, the methods being deployed, and what an analytic philosopher's research looks like on a kind of day-to-day basis.
2: Well, analytic
1: philosophy, as the name suggests,
2: began with the thought that certain kinds of questions need to be clarified and certain kinds of concepts need to be clarified. And so A traditional analytic philosophical question might be, what is knowledge? And the analytic philosopher approaches those by saying, well, I want to get a definition of knowledge that will cover all possible cases. And so you begin by thinking about cases that are relatively close to ordinary life. Would somebody know something if this happened? And Then the cases get wilder and wilder and more and more detached from everyday examples. And I think clarity is a wonderful philosophical virtue. We often need clarity for particular purposes. Think about the concept of democracy, for example. It would be lovely to have a lucid account of what democracy involves, which would enable us to understand the differences between different political regimes in the world today and it would might open the way for a sort of a very serious comparative study and even for political reform in some places that would be extremely useful but analytic philosophy is like a kind of hypertrophy as if somebody had grown an incredibly long second finger or something like that really? and what's going on in some fields of analytic philosophy today i don't say in all is this kind of multiplication of ever more bizarre examples to clarify situations that are so removed from reality that it's just, it's just pointless to do so, I think. Now, the good news is that it's not all like that. And there are trends in current philosophy that seem to me to be going in more promising directions and returning to the enterprise of tackling problems that matter to ordinary people. But there isn't enough of it. And the professionalization of the discipline has meant that many people are locked in to writing these extremely technical, inward-turning articles, because that's the only way they can remain in the profession
1: or advance within it. So one of the kind of premises of your argument is that uh, there was a time in the not-too-distant past when philosophy did address problems that were of interest to both other scholars and to ordinary people. And one of your primary examples of this is a philosopher that we've already talked a little bit about, John Dewey, who is a philosopher in the pragmatist tradition of Charles Peirce and William James. Could you just talk a little bit about, a little bit more about Dewey's legacy and what lessons his thought holds for contemporary philosophy.
2: Well, Dewey dominated the American intellectual scene in the early 20th century. He was someone, I might have been Oliver Wendell Holmes said of Dewey that no question could be regarded as completely discussed until Dewey had his say. That's an amazing accomplishment. And of course, Dewey was chosen to go to Mexico for the trial of Trotsky. He was somebody who spoke out again and again on major issues. But he was actually only one person in a very long tradition. If you think about the history of philosophy, it is absolutely full of figures who really influenced the world. Think about. Rousseau for example there were a few people at the end of the 18th century who listened to Rousseau and they had a thing called the French Revolution or think about the or think about Kant and the ways in which Kant for all of the apparent difficulty of his theoretical writings was hungered for some parts of Germany banned students from reading Kant's books and they tried to get them by whatever ways they could Kant himself wrote many essays for a broader public. And people like Goethe thought of him as somebody who had been immensely illuminating in all sorts of, in all sorts of realms. After Kant come people like Hegel. And from Hegel, the sort of post-Kantian German idealist movement that runs from sort of Fichte through Hegel, changes all sorts of things, uh, consciousness in Germany about science, about nature about about ethical thought, about politics. And out of this tradition comes Marx. Go back further. Aristotle is, according to Dante, il maestro di color che sanno, the master of those who know. That's because he'd had such an influence on Western thought for, well, four or five centuries. It's not a bad run. So the world is full of Western philosophers in the long history who have made this enormous impact. And then it all seems pretty much to go away in the later 20th century and early 21st century, with a few exceptions. I think I I pick out John Rawls. I think I pick out Tom Kuhn, who after all was the person who brought me into philosophy. I think of people like Martha Nussbaum today, who's had a tremendous and very positive influence on people's thinking about all sorts of issues. So it's not entirely dead. But in a period where the number of people doing philosophy has actually multiplied enormously, we seem to have less people writing philosophy professionally for the genuine general public.
1: So one of the ways that you propose to change that fact is by the phrase you use is turning philosophy inside out, meaning taking some of the sub in philosophy that are now considered on the periphery and making them more central. So could you talk a little bit about what exactly those subdisciplines are and why they might provide a better core to philosophy and help it have more significance outside the academy? Actually, I'd like to get rid of the core the
2: core <laughs> periphery distinction entirely. I would like just to think about people responding to questions that arise for ordinary folk. And some of these are practical questions. How do we improve our democracy? Is this particular piece of, of are these particular claims about science and human behavior justified? These are important questions that bear rather directly on human lives, but there are also bigger ones. How should we think about democracy? Can we give a better account of justice? This is, of course, Rawls's great project in the theory of justice. These are very important issues And I guess it seems to me that the important question ought not to be whether it should not be centered so much on a subfield of philosophy, but on the particular kinds of inquiries that are being undertaken. So in the book, I mention a young philosopher whom I admire enormously, who has written recently a very well-received and rightly influential book. This is Amir Srinivasan. So the book is called The Right to Sex. Now, what does Amir do in this book? She takes a cluster of phenomena that that genuinely puzzle people about sexual behavior, and she tries to navigate through the ethical terrain, which is full of minds, basically. It's a wonderful book, and I can imagine all sorts of people over the next decades picking it up and reading it and learning from it and benefiting from it. And it could only have been written by an extremely well-trained philosopher. So there's a general form that I suggest for, the, for, for doing philosophy well. Find a cluster of issues or a single issue that really are of concern to people and try to make sense of it in ways that can help people sort it out for themselves. That, I think, has been the principal task of philosophy, going back to Socrates. What Socrates wants to do is to get people out of their muddles. And that's what philosophers should be trying to do. And they should, as it were, start from the kinds of questions that concern and confuse people to which their philosophical techniques can be employed. I like to think that there has been in the last 30 years, a tremendous advance in philosophical thinking about race and gender. I would like to believe that Barack Obama's famous speech on race, which I thought was pitch perfect, had benefited from this.
0: We'll have more of Alex's conversation with Philip Kitcher in a moment. Earning a Master of Theological Studies in the Franciscan Theology program at the Franciscan School of Theology is now possible from anywhere in the world. The degree offers a blend of academic engagement and spiritual reflection. The online program allows you to learn at your own pace while connecting with fellow students and instructors in a respectful and down-to-earth environment. It's about learning to think critically, considering different views, and analyzing sources and perspectives. The program emphasizes creating space for mutual respect, a true Franciscan value. Embark on a 24-month mutually transformative journey with the world-renowned faculty and instructors from FST. Visit theologicalstudies.sandiegoalloneword.edu to
1: learn more. In the London Review of Books, philosopher named Kieran Setia tried to defend analytic philosophy from some of your criticisms in a number of different ways, but in particular, he accuses you somewhat unbelievably of Philistinism in insisting that philosophy always answer to practical needs. And so I think his idea is that, as with a number of other disciplines, it actually benefits people in the long run to let the practitioners spin off into these abstract realms that might appear like they have no particular use, but we can't quite tell where their pursuits might lead in the future. So how do you respond to that line of criticism? Well, the first thing to say is that Kieran Satya is himself a very good
2: philosopher. He's not only technically accomplished, but he's also done some work in philosophy that I think really does reach out to a, a wider public. I think he misread the book in this regard. Do I really think that all philosophical questions are practical? No. In fact, the fourth chapter of the book is a direct reply to that kind of objection. I'm trying to say how attempts to construct a serious philosophical synthesis can have a profound impact and can be profoundly theoretical. Aristotle and Kant did it. but You don't get much purer than that. But I think what confuses Satya is the, I think he has this sort of ambiguity in his notion of what's practical. When he's attacking me, he thinks that the practical is something that's directly relevant. And he doesn't appreciate the force of my remarks about how philosophy has this much broader task. And I think there is something to be said for the line of argument that you attribute to him. He doesn't make that explicitly, but I think that's a very sympathetic reading and may well have been what was on his mind. There are certainly disciplines, and mathematics is the most obvious of them, but theoretical physics will do as well, that seem to be, for the moment, quite removed from further sort of implications. The career of mathematics, I wonder how whether Kiran Satia has thought very much about the history of mathematics, because up until about sixteen hundred, mathematics is a pretty low budget discipline in the academic and scholarly world. Galileo wants to be known as a philosopher, not as a mathematician. Why is that? It's because for a significant period of time, the mathematicians seem to be working on problems that don't have any significance whatsoever and will never come back to having any significance. All that changes in the 17th century. And it changes, I think, in particular, when mathematics is developed that is shown to apply in physics, and particular with respect to the motion of bodies. And at that point, people say, Give the mathematicians a license. Let them go off. Let them do their own thing for a while. And we'll wait for things to flow back. And of course, what happens over the succeeding centuries is that some mathematicians go out directly and try to devise mathematical systems to meet practical needs. Pascal does that. Euler does that. And in the 20th century, people who invent game theory do that. But other people just pursue the mathematical problems and they develop new bits of mathematics. Those new bits of mathematics then get it to be seen as resources for scientists. And I've written about this, and, and I, think it's, I think the story is interesting and complicated. And mathematicians can basically say, we deserve this license. Look at what we've given you. Well, we might ask the same question for philosophy have these have these theoretical enterprises in which philosophers have been engaged really paid off very much there's been an enormous amount of investment in philosophy within academia we have many more philosophers in teaching than at any stage in past history and yet except in a relatively few cases in the last decades they don't seem to be reaching out very much into the larger world so what I want to suggest is that there's tremendous amounts of work to be done, of the kind that people like Martha Nussbaum and Amir Srinivasan and Bernard Williams and John Rawls, etc., have been doing. Let's have more of that. Let's have less of the technical displays
1: and more of the use of the technique to solve serious problems. In the book, you call this kind of philosophy that you're mentioning there at the end synthetic philosophy since it draws on a a wide range of different fields and even from felt experience and picks up questions that are relevant to people outside of the discipline. Could you just talk a a little bit more about what needs to change in in the field for this kind of work to be more encouraged and more widespread?
2: Philosophers, Are rightly valued for an activity in which they participate, namely their teaching of students. Philosophers are very good at teaching students in all kinds of fields to think more clearly than they otherwise would. And this is demonstrated by the ways in which students who've taken philosophy courses are prepared for all sorts of other lines of work that involve clear, lucid, rigorous thinking. So I think it's very important to keep lots of philosophers around. What I want to do is reorient what they do, not in the classroom, but when they're doing their research. Okay, well, how do you do that? I think the first thing to say is that contrast the ways in which... Contemporary analytic philosophers read with the ways that people have read during the history of philosophy. So the contemporary analytic philosopher, in order to write those heavily footnoted, bristlingly formalized articles in the prestigious journals, pour over those same journals day after day, reading and rereading and and going back to a very small corpus of stuff which has been generated by other philosophers within a very narrow subfield one of the great things about the history of philosophy is how wonderfully broad the abilities are of the people whom we think of as great figures it just you just have to mention any of them rousseau is a very good example rousseau knows a lot about the politics of his time. He also knows a lot about music. He also, as I discovered, reading some of the the notes, and he's completely up on the biology of his time. Schopenhauer. I was reading Schopenhauer. Not only does he know a lot about Indian thought, he reads The Lancet regularly, the British Medical Journal. Look at Kant can't teach his courses on anthropology and geology and cosmology, as well as teaching philosophy. Look at Adam Smith. Adam Smith is sometimes not known as a philosopher, but he was known in his time for the theory of moral sentiments, which was a terrific ethical discourse, a big hit, went through seven editions in his lifetime before you get to the wealth of nations. It's amazing a senior philosopher once said to me, the great thing about philosophy is you have a license to read anything. So some years ago, I got very interested in education, which I seems to me a very central and important philosophical topic. Some excellent people have done philosophical work in it, and it requires a kind of synthetic approach to all sorts of features of human society and human development at the moment. You have to know something. You have to know some psychology. You have to know some economics. You have to know some sociology. And you have to wrestle with central philosophical questions about what makes people's lives go well, what makes their development goes well, go well, in what ways they can be led to have greater understanding of things. There are all sorts of philosophical issues waiting in this area. And yet, it's just dismissed by the majority of philosophers who think that the central problem is to define knowledge completely or to construct the logic of ground or something like that. Something is out of whack here, it seems to me.
1: So just to conclude, there is, I think, an opportunity to do philosophy outside the academy. This is happening now at little magazines like The Point Point eye on even Commonweal itself. It's happening to some extent on podcasts, on substacks. This work, I think at its best, kind of attempts to bring philosophical argumentation and the history of ideas to bear on issues like you've been talking about of contemporary significance in art or politics or social life in ways that are relatable and help people think differently and more deeply about issues that matter to their lives. And obviously much of the most influential philosophy historically has also come from outside the university. So I wonder what you think of the prospects for non-institutional philosophy for philosophy outside the university. I think it's a terrific trend. I
2: think, it's, I think these venues that you're pointing to have done a terrific job. I know ION better than the others, and I think much good writing has been done in the last, especially this is part of the trend that I mentioned before about people being more interested in public philosophy, as it's sometimes called, than they were when I originally wrote Philosophy Inside Out in about 2007, 2008. I think it's terrific. The trouble is, of course, you have to have a day job if you're outside the, the university. You don't have the same amount of time to think, you don't have also have the same engagement. Necessarily with colleagues. So there are disadvantages in trying to do philosophy from the outside. But as you say, many people have done philosophy very successfully without having university appointments. David Hume, John Stuart Mill, there are plenty of people who who weren't university professors. Of course, they had circles in which they could discuss, and that may be a very important feature of doing this successfully in the long run. I like the fact that people outside of academia are doing philosophy again, and well-trained people outside of it. it's not These are not people with inept technique, but people who have been extremely well-trained, but who have just become a disillusioned with the rat race of the contemporary philosophy profession. I also like the fact that people who are within the university are writing for these magazines. Philosophy is healthy when we get out a
1: bit more. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up. Thanks so much for joining the Common Podcast. Well, thank you. I enjoyed this a lot.
0: Philip Kitcher's most recent book is What's the Use of Philosophy? Available now from Oxford University Press. And now here's Kate Lucky with a short reflection on Marilyn Robinson, whose work, including a 2012 essay called, Imagination and Community, has appeared in the pages of Commonweal.
3: Hi there, my name is Kate Lucky. I'm a former managing editor of Commonweal, and these days I write for the magazine. As we approach Commonweal's 100th anniversary, we're looking back at some of the writers who've appeared in the magazine's pages. One of those writers is Marilyn Robinson. We've covered her novels, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Gilead and her essays. She's been interviewed by Commonweal and the magazine has also published some of her original work and excerpts from her collections. One of those excerpts is a 2012 essay which appeared in Commonweal as Imagination and Community. It's from her book When I Was a Child I Read Books. It's a really beautiful piece, and it starts with the premise that words often express the inexpressible, that language, which we might think is just there to express the plain meaning of things, often indicates something more. So to explain that idea a little bit more, I'm going to read from Imagination and Community. We live on a little island of the articulable, which we tend to mistake for reality itself. We can and do make small and tedious lives as we sail through the cosmos on our uncannily lovely little planet, and this is surely remarkable. But we do so much else besides. For one thing, we make language. Robinson goes on, language is profoundly communal, and in the mere fact of speaking, then writing, a wealth of language grows and thrives among us that has enabled thought and knowledge in a degree we could never calculate. As individuals and as a species, we are unthinkable without our communities. True community, Robinson argues, has something to do with language, and it exists really of imaginative love, she writes, for people we do not know or whom we know very slightly. And that expression of community that definition impacts how we think about all kinds of things, about liberal arts education and politics and how we understand ourselves as citizens and whether we treat other people cynically or with a capacious understanding of their humanity with the things about them that also might be inarticulable and merely gestured at through language. So one last passage from that excerpt. When we condescend, writes Robinson, when we act consistently with a sense of the character of people in general which demeans them, we impoverish them and ourselves and preclude our having a part in the creation of the highest wealth, the testimony to the mysterious beauty of life we all value in psalms and tragedies and epics and meditations in short stories and novels. In the same way we diminish the worth of the institutions of society, law, journalism, education, and religion as well, when we forget respect and love for the imagined other, the man or woman or child we will never know, who will take the good from these institutions that we invest in them, or who will be harmed or disheartened because our institutions are warped by meagerness and cynicism. I think this excerpt serves as a really apt model for what Commonweal has tried to do throughout its almost century-long history. You know, making connections between faith and art and literature and politics and things in the public sphere and things in the private sphere and all towards casting a vision of what it means to live as a certain kind of Catholic, as a certain kind of Christian, as a certain kind of thinker in a certain kind of community. Reading this essay of Marilyn Robinson's reminded me of another piece on the power of literature from a different vantage point. And this piece ran in 2019 when I was working at Commonweal. Cassandra Nelson's Bracing for Impact, Trauma, Triggers, and the Power of Literature. Nelson is an academic at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at UVA, and this is one of my favorite pieces that we published during my time at Commonweal. In it, Nelson writes about her really painful childhood trauma and recovered memories of that trauma and what it means to read in pain and to be pained by what we read, but also healed by what we read. So... I really recommend going on to Commonwealth's website and reading the essay in its entirety, but a few excerpts to give you a sense of what it's like. Every semester, I tell my students that one reason to read literature is that someday someone they love will die or be born, and they will be hit by a wave of grief or joy like they have never known before. In that moment... Words from poems and novels will come to them and help them stand upright or get their bearings if they've been knocked over. Dante had Virgil, and I had Julian of Norwich and Saul Bellow and Thomas Pynchon to guide me through the vagaries of life, to explain the pain I felt, and to teach me the primacy of love and the sacredness of children. And so one moral of this story is to read widely because you never know which book could end up saving your life. That's certainly been true in my life as a reader and as a writer. And these two essays, Nelson's and Robinson's, remind me why I do what I do, why I read, why I write, even when doing so can feel futile or disconnected from the many problems facing our world. And it's a reason why institutions, why magazines like Commonweal are so important as places where people can share ideas, can make art, and can more than anything, emphasize that those things, thinking, art making, and doing so together, have value, as we often say, maybe now more than ever, but certainly they have for the past 100 years. Thanks.
0: You can find more of Marilyn Robinson's work, as well as essays from Cassandra Nelson and Kate Lucky, on our website. And look forward to more of these segments as we prepare for our 100th anniversary in 2024. This is Dominic Preziosi, for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.